Hi, I'm Pinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. In this episode, we are covering Lesotho. There are a lot of unfamiliar terms, names. We have tried our best, our very best, and have had it checked with other people to make sure that we are getting the pronunciation as spot on as possible. But please do forgive us if we make some slight mistakes. This is not in our first language. We are trying our best. There might be an English. There's definitely a strong English accent within there. But please do forgive us. And yeah, hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of It's a Continent. How's it going? Welcome back. Yeah, good, good. Just figuring out uh, my first ever winter holiday. I never thought skiing was... I did my first shop today. I've never been in decathlon before and it was <laughs> overwhelming to say the least. Buying gloves have, has never felt more stressful than I felt this morning, like today in the shop. I was literally like, is this okay? Will this keep me warm enough? And I was just... I mean, going on a holiday to somewhere that is cold... I, I don't understand it, but I wish you all the best. Neither do I. Neither do I. I hate the cold. I hate the snow. But I might as well do it and tick it off the bucket list. You never know. I might, it might become my sport, you know? You know? So <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Yes, it already is pretty, pretty chilly over here, but it's dark. It's cold. So you'll get some good practice in wear your, your gloves and see if it keeps you warm in these climates. <laughs> Yeah, in minus God knows what temperature. But yeah, because I kept putting on gloves and I was like, this feels really warm. But in my head, I was like, yes, but is it going to keep you warm when it's minus something or other? Uh, maybe not. Also, one more thing I just have to add, because I just saw that Cambridge have returned a bit in bronze to Nigeria. Things that we love to see. Yeah. Should we get started? Should yes. we get started? Should Let's we do get this going. Thing? Let's do it. Right. Let's do it. So African pride, as we like to kick off. My one is basically, I feel like I'm feeling super wintry and just, okay, it's getting into winter. Thinking about going home and one of the things we love to do is play board games. And I've just been looking up and shopping for new games to play. And this led me to my African pride this week. Ooh. Which goes to Kenichuku Ogbwagu, who is looking to revolutionise the board game industry by introducing more Nigerian-made games. So I absolutely love this idea. So he had no experience in creating board games, but in 2016, he went on to found his own game production company, Nibcard, and followed this with the introduction of an annual convention called the Annual African Board Games Convention. So it does what it says on the tin. And it is very much considered one of the first board game conventions in West Africa. So well done to him. Since the company's launch, they've designed and manufactured over 33 tabletop games, all made in Nigeria, as well as opening the first tabletop games cafe in the country as well. I love myself a games cafe, honestly. Oh yeah. No, they are one of my yeah. favourite things. 100%. They have a wide variety of games, including the one I quite liked was Village War, uh, The Calamity. 
which basically combines the history, folklore, myths, and fantasy of the Ibo tribe in Nigeria. So that's my African pride this week, discovering new board games because it's coming up to Christmas. I wanna check that out because it's not everyday Monopoly Lagos. No, you can't be monopolizing every single day. Not everyday yeah. capitalism, like sometimes a bit no. of history and myths and fantasy. <laughs> mm-hmm. This week, we are in Lesotho, Africa's only enclaved country. An enclaved country is a territory surrounded by a larger territory whose inhabitants are culturally or ethnically distinct. There are only three countries in the world that have this status. The Republic of San Marino, enclaved within Italy. Vatican City, which is enclaved within the city of Rome. And the country that we're discussing this week, the Kingdom of Lesotho, enclaved within South Africa. The Kingdom of Lesotho has existed since the Neolithic period, also known as the New Stone Age. During this time period, the country was populated by Khoshan-speaking hunter-gatherers. From the 16th to 19th century, the Sotho people, also known as the Basotho, began to move into the country. They were separated into various factions with supporting chiefdoms. Between 1815 to 1840, Southern Africa as a whole dealt with great chaos and conflicts between chiefdoms which resulted in changes and restructuring of the chiefdoms. This period was known as the Difficane, which roughly translates as the crushing or scattering. New leaders and chiefdoms emerged from the Difficane. Uh, one of these leaders was King Meshweshwe, the first of the Mokoteli, son of the chief of the Bakotela branch of the Kwena clan, which translates as the Crocodile clan. In 1820, Mshwe became chief of several southern Basutu groups, and four years later, he and his people moved their headquarters to the Thaba Bosu region of Lesotho, uh, and the name Thaba Bosu, loosely translated, means mountain at night. This move allowed him to absorb more people and chiefdoms into what became known as the Kingdom of the Basutu, which was otherwise called Basutuland. I'm just going to guess that it was the Brits that came up with that, with that name. <laughs> Land after everything. <laughs> everything. Astrid Land. <laughs> it's important to clarify that up until 1966, Lesotho was known as Basutu Land and its people were known as the Sotho and or the Basutu. By helping out different chiefdoms and expanding the impact of his own community, Mushweshwe was able to define what it meant to be Basutu. He also recognised the significance of obtaining skills and knowledge from those who visited the region. And so he invited missionaries from the Paris Evangelical Missionary Society to teach his people about the world. So was this the right move? I mean, they're going to give you a little bit of a skewed version of the world. So Mishweshwe made sure that he located these missionaries within key areas of the country. So this kind of allowed the Sutu people to have their first encounter with Christianity but also white supremacy. Um. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was just interesting because potentially, you know, a lot of other countries, well, territories at the time, were getting a lot of influence from Christianity and these missionaries kind of coming in. Uh, You had this in Uganda as well, and they come in kind of influencing. And it depends how it's positioned, isn't it? Are you, are the missionaries coming in to teach and kind of expand the territory in terms of people knowing different sorts of faiths or is it more of a you know your faith is incorrect and you know so it's, it depends how it is how it's positioned yeah I think I've read something about how Mishwe kind of used these missionaries strategically so they I think he wanted to know what was going on so he kind of 
almost use him as his eyes and ears in that sense. Um, so I guess like it's a bit like um, Queen and Zinger, like she was friendly with the missionaries, but she knew what that she was just trying to get some answers from them, kind Something. of thing. Yeah. In 1834, uh, Boer people from the Cape Colony, so these are the Dutch settlers, a British colony, which today forms part of South Africa, began to settle in Western Lesotho and began to challenge the Basutus for the land. Shock. This prompted 30 years of conflicts between the Basutus and the Boer people, with the outcome being the Basutu losing a portion of their country. During this time period, Mishwe Shwe requested for the British to mediate on the disagreements regarding boundary lines. However, this support failed to materialise. Now here comes the British Empire. Um, Favourite topic. In the late 1860s, Mishwe Shwe wrote to Sir Philip Woodhouse, the governor and high commissioner of the Cape Colony, for support as he feared the elimination of the Basutu people as a result of the conflict. Woodhouse soon declared Basutu land a British protectorate. Basutu land remained a British protectorate until Mishwe Shwe's passing in 1870. During his leadership, he brought people together and amassed a population exceeding 150,000. The following year, Basuto land was annexed to the Cape Colony without the consent of the Basutu people. Basuto land lost quite a bit of its territory to the Boers and its political self-sufficiency to the British. Attempts by the Cape Colony administration to disarm the Sutu led to the Gun War of 1880-1881. The Cape Colony relinquished Basutu land to the British rule in 1884, when it became one of three British High Commission territories in Southern Africa, with Eswatini and Botswana being the other two. The 19th and 20th centuries saw Basutu land's economic development. Also, opposition to the colonial system grew, and the Basutu people were unified in their opposition to Basutu land's incorporation into South Africa, and their fear that the British might relinquish power to South Africa without consulting them. They definitely had that fear, like they already weren't consulted beforehand. Political parties began to form within Basutu land, with three major political parties emerging at the time. You had the Basutu land Congress Party, the BCP, the Basutu land National Party, the BNP. Sorry? <laughs> Too trivia right now, the BNP. So the BN who? Um, not that BNP. No, not that BNP. And the Marema Two Freedom Party. In 1955, Basutuland gained the rights to control its own internal affairs and it became self-governing in 1965. On the 4th of October 1966, the country gained independence from Britain and became known as the Kingdom of Lesotho. It's good that they, the people of Lesotho managed to avoid being incorporated into South Africa. I feel that because that determination kind of has led to why it's still that enclave now, isn't it? Otherwise, it would have since been absorbed and it would have been yet another colonial boundary yeah and it would have just all the culture and everything would have been lost by just yeah. being immersed into south africa definitely props to them for being able to hold their own and yeah maintain their country and being able to keep it mm. just a side note uh during world war ii more than twenty thousand basutu people served for the british in north africa europe and the middle east I am, mm. this is one of the things, honestly, when we write these things up, that you find out like how many African countries were involved in the world wars. A lot. Yeah, just had 20,000 Basutu people yeah, yeah, involved in World War II. Did you know that? No. You're like, where are they in the films? Yeah. Where are they in the that? documentaries? Where, is, where are they on the History Channel? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It was only probably early 20s 
that I realised just how many people from the African continent actually like, fought on behalf of the Allied forces. I mean, it is called World War for a reason, in that, obviously, when you hear the name World War, it's like, well, yeah, why wouldn't the whole world have been involved? But I think that Eurocentric Western lens kind of blinds you sometimes because it just makes you think that oh yeah it was the you know how like sometimes in america that like, the world championship like it's literally yeah. american and my only american teams and you're like in what world are you guys you know <laughs> yeah it's almost, a, almost that kind of approach it's like world war but we're like why have we thought it was acceptable that it was just western european world and a bit of japan on the side i just i would have loved to have just known how for, you know, the 20,000 Basutu people who went to war in World War Two, how that experience was like for them from their perspective, you know, being taken out of their country. Yeah. Now you're in Europe fighting or do you know what I mean? Just yeah. having that understanding and being able to just understand what it was like for them would be amazing. Got to highlight this, especially with Remembrance Day coming up next month. Because we all know that it's poppy season. I saw I saw a poppy yeah. on a tube train this morning and I was like, oh, okay. I'm sure I'm going to see those debates circling on the timeline again. (laughs) Oh no, it is actually. It's coming up. It's going up. Toxic poppy commentary season. We've done, and we've not done this in a while actually, we've done a flag analysis and I think we used to do these more so in our first season. But here's one, a little throwback, but this one is for the Lesotho flag. So the design of the flag revolves around the themes of peace and stability. The top blue band is said to represent rain or the clear blue skies. You have the middle white band, which is said to stand for peace and indicates the country's internal peace and its peaceful relationship with its sole international neighbour, South Africa. And the traditional Basutu hat, the Mokoroklo, is said to represent Basutu's cultural heritage. And then you have the bottom green stripe, which is said to symbolise prosperity or the fertile land that is Lesotho. The Mokorotlo is a conical grass hat used for traditional Sutu clothing and is the national symbol of the country. I do love analysing these flags, honestly. I, I like finding... <laughs> there is a reason for them. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, when you look at the old colonial flags or whatever, and it's always like that symbol of the Union Jack and then the rad from mm. the Gold Coast. It was like, here's mm. an elephant. Like, wow, that was terrible. It's nice to see these flags kind of represented their true identity. Because of Lesotho's geographical position, it's heavily reliant on South Africa. So Lesotho's economy could not be sustained without the benefits that it does get from South Africa which it forms as part of the Southern African Customs Union, a bit like the EU, I guess. Um, obviously, you couldn't have an episode without talking about the EU, but uh, <laughs> we move. The members of Southern Africa Customs Union, also known as SACU, include Botswana, Lesotho, Namibia, South Africa and Eswatini. Uh, and this is one of the world's oldest custom unions, having been founded in 1910. So both Lesotho and South Africa share an integrated communication system as well as the Lesotho Highlands Water Project. This project is a large-scale water transfer scheme which exports water to South Africa and produces hydroelectric power for Lesotho. It also heavily depends on South Africa for employment for much of the working population. There were also great tensions between the two countries 
as apartheid was firmly established in South Africa. And I can imagine as well, this was a huge factor as to why the Basuti people didn't want to be integrated into South Africa because it's like, hello. Yeah, imagine. <laughs> You're looking at your neighbours being like, um, apartheid, no, no. It's a hard no like, from the mm. whole population. Yeah. And in the 1970s, the Lesotho government heavily and openly criticised apartheid, as did much of southern African countries. And the country began accepting refugees from South Africa. They could only do so much as they could do because South Africa did have that sort of monopoly over them. But yeah, um, it's good to kind of see that they, they did what they could do. Lesotho's heavy dependence on South Africa has also led to the rise of an organisation in Lesotho called the People's Charter Movement. This group started in around 2010, which advocated for Lesotho to become a part of South Africa, which is a bit weird now, isn't it? Yeah, they want to go the opposite opposite way around. We want to be a part of it, please. I'm, I'm, I'm still holding hope that we will go, go back into the EU. But... We'll get into that custody. Sorry, you mentioned it and then, and then it got me all... <laughs> Gosh, I need to rein it in, rein it in. We're in Lesotho, we're in Lesotho. We're in Lesotho. Let's, let's take off those Western glasses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the People's Charter Movement campaigned for Lesotho to join South Africa because Lesotho has been bankrupted by the HIV pandemic. So Lesotho had the second highest prevalence in the world with one in four people in the country living with HIV. And in May 2010, several hundred people marched through the capital of Lesotho and they delivered a petition to Parliament and the South African High Commission requesting that their country be integrated into South Africa. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you they would fight to kind of go into South Africa and be a part of South Africa. But I'm sure, obviously, you know, the whole two sides to every story and all of that. Of course. Um, in terms of really understanding. Um, and, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like... I'm from Lesotho or I've been reading up on Lesotho and I've done lots of research and understand yes. why. It'll be feel free to reach out to us and let us know because I'd do. really be intrigued to understand a bit more about why yeah. the integration would be a good thing. I'm sure it's just, you know, seeing it offhand and you're like, hmm, really? But you know, there might be valid reasons around why it would be good for the country to be integrated. But I feel like mm. that stuff, you're kind of like, you know, your own country. Yes, there is a dependency on South Africa, but you're still, still have your own space. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of Lesotho forming one nation with South Africa has also inspired the creation of a new party within the country called the African Unity Movement, the AUM, which seeks to abolish the borders between South Africa and Lesotho before pushing for the complete integration of the two countries. So again, yeah, it'll be really interesting to hear from yeah, those in South Africa, those in Lesotho. What do you think? What What's going mm. on? Because most of the time within the continent, apart from, maybe I don't know if we've not reached another country like this, but everyone is looking to, not everyone, but it's separation. No, it's true because you've got separatist movements in Nigeria, in Cameroon, in Somalia and Somaliland. Yeah. And it's usually like to rid colonial borders, whereas here it's this is a border that, yes, it got eroded by the Boer people, but it's not a colonial border. So it's it's quite unusual to see this approach. To see it in this way, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to all the separatist movements that are ongoing. But also, when you separate, there are challenges with that as well, so... It, well, yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not smooth sailing. It's not smooth sailing. <laughs> it's like, look at South Sudan. Sudan. It, it's not. It's not exactly smooth sailing. Yeah, it's not. It's not the easiest thing. 
we do have an episode on South Sudan actually just just, just shouted ourselves out we couldn't cover Lesotho without covering the political drama which happened recently. Lesotho's ex-Prime Minister Thomas Tabane and his third wife, Maya Tabane, were accused of murdering Tabane's second wife, Lipolelo, in 2017. The pair were accused of paying a gang $180,000 to murder Lipolelo. The ex-Prime Minister denied any involvement in the death of his second wife, who was killed two days before her husband's inauguration. This isn't any, you know, we're just presenting the facts out here. Potentially yeah. a coincidence. We don't, you know, we're just presenting the story as it is. It's just the facts. It's just the facts. Lipolelo had reportedly refused a divorce and won a court battle to retain her privileges as first lady until any form of separation. Tabane remarried two months after the murder and his new wife became first lady. The killing had initially been blamed on a local gang which made sense considering Lesotho has one of the highest murder rates in the world. Is that because it has a small population? Probably. There's probably an element of that. You know, if you've got a population, I'm not saying they've got five, but if you've got a population of five people and, you know, it's, <laughs> you're, you, you're going to be up there. You're going to be up there. That definitely has a part of it. I don't want to portray it in a way. No, that's a good chat, actually. Yeah, portray it in a way let's... that it's the world's most dangerous place. No, no. Yeah. When you try and go abroad, like, I forgot the website. It's that British embassy yeah. one that's like, don't go here. You're like, whoa, like, it's not that deep. <laughs> no, do not try. Obviously, I'm not <laughs> saying it go against the government's ruling, but. Some of those websites, and especially the government's ones, for those in the UK, it kind of does like a bit of like a, is it like a traffic light system or something? But it's like, yeah. this is dangerous, do not, yeah. the country will not help you if you're stuck in this here or something. But, and then you're like, really, it's chilled. Just, yeah, it basically honestly, says, don't be an yeah. idiot. You know? Yeah, don't be an don't idiot. have That's, your valuables out. Yeah, don't do what you would do in Spain when you go here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> New evidence surfaced which found communication records from the day of the crime picked up the Prime Minister's mobile number. The Deputy Commissioner of Police said that Tabane and Maya wanted Lipolelo dead so that she could assume the position of First Lady. He also said the suspected murderers were members of the infamous FAMO gang who would be remunerated in cash and for employment opportunities should they carry out the murder for the deceased prior to Tabane's inauguration as Prime Minister. A few months following the murder accusation, Prime Minister Tabane resigned. His resignation provided the Lesotho government the opportunity to appoint its first female Prime Minister, Matsepo Ramakoa. Matsepo Ramakoa emerged as a strong contender to replace Tabane. She had solid political experience having been former Deputy Finance Minister and having additional roles in regional parliament. In an interview with the Lesotho Times, she showed her understanding of her country's needs from its next leader by stating, we need a person who understands the difficulties that the country has gone through. This country needs stability, it needs economic empowerment. The masses need service delivery, job creation and effective state institutions that respect rule of law. Despite her strong following and support within Lesotho's government, she wasn't chosen as Prime Minister. That position was assigned to the former Finance Minister, Moketsi Majoro. Majoro previously worked for the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and had experience within politics. Yet, Ms Ramakoa had better credentials. Choosing a female candidate as Prime Minister would have gone far in compensating for Lesotho's inability to satisfy a decades-old vow 
to guarantee equivalent portrayal of women in positions of power by 2015. Lesotho's commitment when it came to the portrayal of kind of women and greater representation of them within that government was something they did back in 1997 when they joined the Southern African Development Community, the SADC countries, in signing a protocol on gender and development, which agreed on a phased process of achieving equal representation. So by 2005, there should have been at least 30% representation of women in political and decision-making structures. It's been over 20 years since the protocol was signed and Lesotho is still some way short of hitting the 30% marker it should have reached 15 years ago. What makes the lack of women in senior positions within Lesotho's government surprising is because historically young men didn't finish school and instead went to work in South Africa, usually as minors. Therefore, men had lower levels of literacy, whereas the women stayed in their home country studying and found work locally. Therefore, women contributed hugely to the country's economy. Mm, interesting. It'll be interesting to see kind of where they're at at this point. Um, but when you they talk about women's rights within the continent, I always think of Thomas Sankara just because of remember just what he did. There was no limit and he had that clear understanding of women need to be on the same footing or else society can't progress kind of approach. No, definitely. Where are we now? In 1980, Lesotho produced 80% of the cereals it consumes, but today it actually imports 70%. Lesotho continues to face financial issues, high unemployment, and heavy reliance on its neighbour South Africa. And all of these factors have kind of felt entrenched since uh, the existence. The key question is, what will Lesotho look like in 10, 20, or, or even 30 years' time? And will those advocating for the country to form part of South Africa get their way, or will the country find its feet as an enclave nation? We don't know, but... We'll see where it goes. Watch yeah, this space. Definitely watch this space. That is Lesotho. Thank you for listening. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at It's a Continent and Instagram at It's a Continent Pod. Also, yeah, make sure you have a look at the book that we have in the making. You can pre-order the book It's a Continent with the link in the episode description. And we'll be back for our final episode of this season in two weeks' time. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. See you soon. Bye. Bye.